0: Germany calling,
1: Germany calling, Germany calling, I want to discuss with you some topics of current interest. Four days ago, under the orders of their supreme commander, the German forces established one of the greatest feats and triumphs in the annals of military history. In relation to the magnitude of its achievement, the campaign was the shortest of which any record is available. Three weeks ago, Mr. Chamberlain predicted the possibility of warfare in Scandinavia. Nobody in Britain paid any great attention to his prophecy, as it lacked the note of novelty. For months, Mr. Winston Churchill had been lecturing the neutrals on their duties, and using veiled threats to coerce them into hostilities on Britain's side. Mr. Horrible a man well qualified to voice the sentiment of international finance, had openly demanded that the Allies should intervene by force of arms in the russo finnish War, regardless of the violation of Scandinavian neutrality, which such intervention must imply. On the day when Finland suddenly saw Wilson and made peace, the British Prime Minister, knowing that the the Russo-Finnish War was over, offered to fight side by side with the Finns to the Piquerez. And Monsieur Daladier revealed the fact that 50,000 troops had been standing by for a fortnight, ready to invade Scandinavia. As Milton says, they also serve who only stand and wait. However the depression which settled over London when the Russians and the Finns came to terms began to lift, gradually but surely. There emerged a feeling that if only Mr. Churchill were given full power to do as he pleased, some brilliant result could be achieved somewhere. Accordingly, he was promoted to what in effect is the supreme command of the British forces. Although he clung to to the Admiralty, where he had taken the trouble to install his 25-year-old furniture, a pair of carpet slippers, and three telephones, black, red, and green, for ordinary, extraordinary, and secret purposes, respectively. Most fortified, the aged warlord of far-famed Gallipoli Renown was set up by Neville Chamberlain as the man who was a match for Hitler. Lord Crew Paved the way to the climax by stating on behalf of the British government that Britain did not suppose to be bound by technical considerations of international law. The violation of Norwegian territorial waters by the brutal and murderous attack on the Altmert was the only victory that Britain had so far won. But it was encouraging. It had been possible to shoot unarmed seamen on the ice. In neutral territory without incurring yes. any terrible danger. And it seems that so the more British strategists pondered upon the success of this glorious operation, the more certainly they began to feel that a warfare conducted upon these lines was bound to succeed. The next stage was marked by a loud trumpeting and raid from the British Prime yes. Minister and his Chief of Staff, General Isleton. They trembled to think of what might have happened. Had John lost an armed offensive, last December. But all was well now. Hitler, poor fellow, had missed the bus. The corner had been turned. Mr. Churchill's forces were prepared for all eventualities. And Mr. Chamberlain felt ten times as confident as he had felt seven months previously. This barrage mm. of joyous optimism having been thrown up the British government announced its intention of converting Norway's territorial waters into a naval zone by laying mines within them. Norway protested, and her protest was rejected. When she had protested against the outmark outrage, she was met with a counter-protest. This time she was met with the advance of the British Navy and Air Force against her. While, however, this advance was beginning, something dramatic happened. The man who had missed the bus acted like lightning. This Mercedes bent bent. proved rather better than the trundling rolling rolling stock of the London General Omnibus Company. The supreme warlord of Whitehall discovered on Tuesday morning doubtless with the help of his colored telephone that Denmark and Norway had been occupied by German forces. Their economic resources had fallen into German hands. England had lost not only the most valuable sources of bacon, butter, timber, nickel, and iron. She had lost all hope of making Scandinavia a strategic base of operations against Germany and the man who missed the bus. She had lost the military game. She had lost the diplomatic game. She had, in fact, most thoroughly lost faith. Did the illustrious descendants of Marlborough and distinguished person?
0: Gallop down
1: to the nearest naval base on his foaming charger and offered to lead his men to death or glory? Far from it. He had a more important task to accomplish. He had to set to work without further ado to devise some kind of plausible explanation for the millions of his Britannic majesty's subjects who were hanging on his word. After more than 48 hours of reflection and excogitation, he produced quite the most miserable effort of his rhetorical coming-up. This remarkable performance, which might well have been billed as positively my last appearance, was staged before the British House of Commons yesterday. For gratitude, inanity, shuffling evasions, and verbosity without context, it stands alone in the history of the old mother of Parliament. The fire-eating, choleric, bragging, is gloriosum, Suddenly became the nervous advocate with an illegible brief. Those who had expected the thunder of Britain's might to roll forth, those who had waited to see the blue lightning flashing through the oratorical museum of Westminster, must have been sorely disappointed. Let us examine one or two of his fundamental statements. <laughs> first of all, <laughs> first of all, his most learned strategical adviser said he told him that Hitler. Had made a great mistake. Yet, veritably, Germany had committed a blunder which would greatly weaken her position. In fact, one must infer from his words that we have really played into his hands. He did not go quite so far as to say that the British laying of mines in Norwegian waters had merely been intended to tempt Germany to occupy Scandinavia. He left that to be inferred by his more credulous admirers. But his cool a distorted little mind and worked out a plea designed to convince the British people that what Hitler had done was, after all, a good thing. Reasoning along the same lines, he expressed the conviction, the earnest assurance, that in the new circumstances, it would be much easier for Britain to blockade Germany effectively. If you do not believe me, read his speech for yourselves. Yes? Britain now commanded the Faroes, and another loophole in the blockade of the Reich was closed. So at one fell swoop, Hitler, by acquiring the coastline of the North Sea and establishing German air bases upon it, had made Mr. Churchill's task much easier. And by confiscating the Norwegian and Danish merchant fleets, he had assisted Britain's carrying trade. And by acquiring access to the agricultural wealth of Denmark, Germany had made her starvation more certain. By seizing the iron and timber of Norway, Germany had dealt a fatal blow at her own armament. Yes, as the poet wrote about one of Marlborough's battles, it was a famous victory. So much for Mr. Churchill in the higher style. Let us now descend, if you can bear it, to examine his lower reaches of mental activity. Norway, he said, was a wild, mountainous, unfriendly land where free men could find shelter easily at night. A great consolation for the Norwegians. Naval warfare, he explained, was less predictable than warfare on land, for distances, storms, mist, and even the darkness of night all played their part. He seems to have been thinking of what British insurance brokers call acts of God. Then, said he, you may wonder why I have held all this back until Thursday afternoon. But there was an explanation of the most ingenious order. The British naval personnel, he actually said, were so interested in their work that they often had no time to report what was happening. This was a feature of communications. Of which any first lord must surely be proud. And in the army, we suppose, the colonel gets a telephone call from his brigadier to ask how things are going, and he curtly says, So, here, old chap, do regard. I'm so busy. Certainly warfare is changing. Then said the first lord, German ships will be sunk in the Skagerank and the Kattegat, whenever the opportunity occurred. This was a brilliant generalization if not a very blood-channeling threat. Hitler, of course, is to be deposed when the opportunity occurs. There could, however, he went on be nothing more stupid than to expect that British forces should constantly patrol the coastal waters of Norway and Denmark, thus constituting targets for Hitler's humour. These were Mr. Churchill's wisest words. The best method of protecting Britain's invaluable forces is to keep them out of Germany's way. Thus the German occupation of Scandinavia has been accepted as a matter of fact. But of course a number of demonstrations must be arranged to convince the British public that Mr. Churchill is still earning his salary. He might have been wiser if he had frankly told the House of Commons that this occupation was so firmly established that practical measures to end it were outside the limits of possibility. Perhaps the most humorous and yet the most pathetic observation which Mr. Churchill made, was that in the international lottery? Norway and Denmark had drawn the unlucky number. But still he assured them of British sympathy, and they probably thought of the sympathy which had been poured out so lavishly to Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Finland. The old story has been repeated once again. The cat's boys used and then discarded. The British government deliberately placed Norway in a compromising position. It was well known to the king's minister that Germany would not tolerate the occupation of Norwegian waters by British forces. The Norwegian protest was contemptuously rejected, and when Norway had to accept the consequences of British policy, the British Broadcasting Corporation played some Norwegian military marches and Mr. Chatham expressed his deep sympathy and condolence, at the same time pointing out that Norwegian land was well suited to guerrilla tactics. And yet, some people wonder what is meant by the phrase "first Indian albert."